0: Translations and purports by Divine Grace, Bhaktivedanta Swami, Srila Prabhupada, Rishabha Uvacha, Nayandeho Deha Vajam Niloke Kastam Vid Bhujam Ye, Tapodivyam Putraka Yena Satvam, Shudyad Yasmad Brahma Sokam Tanantam. Lord Rishabhdev told his sons, My dear boys, all the living entities who have accepted material bodies in this world of all the material, of all the, the living entities who have accepted material bodies in this world. One who has been awarded this human form should not work hard and simply uh, day and night, simply for sense gratification, which is available even for dogs and hogs that eat soul One should engage in penance and austerity to attain the divine position of devotional service. By such activity, one's heart is purified. And when one attains this position, he attains eternal blissful life, which is transcendental to material happiness and which continues forever. Then I'm going to read the Purport, Vāshīva Prabhupāda. That's a translation. In this verse, Lord Vāshāvadeva tells His sons about the importance of human life. The word Dehavāk refers to anyone who accepts a material body. But the living entity who is awarded the human form must act differently from animals. Animals like dogs and hogs enjoy sense gratification by eating stool. After undergoing severe hardships all day, human beings are trying to enjoy themselves at night by eating, drinking, having sex, and sleeping. At the same time, they have to properly defend themselves. However, this is not human civilization. Human life means voluntarily practicing suffering for the advancement of spiritual life. This, of course, is suffering... Uh, There is, of course, I'm sorry, there is, of course, suffering in the lives of animals and plants, which are suffering due to their past misdeeds. However, human beings should voluntarily accept sufferings in the form of austerities and penances in order to attain the divine life. After attaining the divine life, one can enjoy happiness eternally. After all, every living entity is trying to enjoy happiness. But as long as one is encaged in the material body, he has to suffer different kinds of misery. A higher sense is present in the human form. We should act according to superior advice in order to attain eternal happiness and go back to Godhead. It is significant in this verse that the government and the natural guardian, the father, should educate subordinates and raise them to Krishna consciousness. Devoid of Krishna consciousness, every living being suffers in this cycle of birth and death perpetually. To relieve them from this bondage and enable them to become blissful and happy, bhakti yoga should be taught. A foolish civilization neglects to teach people how to rise to the platform of bhakti-yoga. Without Krishna consciousness, a person is no better than a hog or dog. The instructions of Dev are very essential at the present moment. People are being educated and trained to work very hard for sense gratification, and there is no sublime aim in life. A man travels to earn his livelihood, leaving home early in the morning, catching a local train, and being packed in a compartment. He has to stand for an hour or two in order to teach, in order to reach his place of business. And again, again, he takes a bus to get to the office. At the office, he works hard from 9 to 5. Then he takes two or three hours to return home. After eating, he has sex and goes to sleep. For all this hardship, his only happiness is a little sex. Rishabhdev clearly states that the human life is not meant for this kind of existence, which is enjoyed by hogs and dogs. Indeed, dogs and hogs do not have to work so hard for sex. A human being should try to live in a different way and should not try to imitate dogs and hogs. The alternative is mentioned. Human life is meant for tapasya, austerity and penance. By tapasya, one can get out of the material clutches. When one is situated in Krishna consciousness, devotional service, his happiness is guaranteed by taking to bhakti-yoga devotional service, one's existence is purified. The living entity is seeking happiness, life after life. He can make a solution to all the problems simply by practicing bhakti-yoga. Then he immediately becomes eligible to return home back to Godhead, as confirmed in Bhagavad Gita 4.9. One who knows the transcendental nature of my appearance and activities does not upon leaving this body take his birth again in this material world but attains my eternal abode, O Arjuna. Lord Rishabh Dev is making a distinction here between animal life and human life. And his instruction to his sons is that anyone who gets the special benefit of having a human body should utilize it for attaining to higher principles, to practice higher notions above eating, sleeping, and mating and defending, which as he says here, are the province of animals, hogs and dogs, for example. And all of us have an animalistic side of our nature. The purpose of spiritual life is to raise ourselves uh, from our lower nature to our higher nature, to ascend from the animal nature to the human nature. So there is a distinct difference between animal and human because an animal cannot reason. Uh, We can reason. We can think. And we can, if we're very at inward if we're very introspective, we can think that maybe there's something wrong. Maybe, just maybe, that coming into the world and growing up and getting married and maintaining ourselves and having offspring and then dwindling and then dying, the six transformations of material nature, maybe that's, that's not everything there is. Maybe there's something more to that because everything is is, uh, disintegrates. There's the entropy theory, whatever it is, organic or inorganic, it's here for a while, and then it's gone, apparently, into the outer darkness of oblivion. And it happens, it happens to everything material, every building, every empire, every body of every living entity disappears at some point. A spiritually oriented person, or persons on the path of spiritual life is concerned with that which does not deteriorate and that which is eternal. Those things that, like the oceans, the mountains, the stars, the sun, of course they have their lives too. Um, They have a period, they have cycles that they go through and they don't even last forever, but they last much, much longer than we do. Their lifetimes are much longer than ours. But there is something even longer than that lifetime, and that is Eternity, right? Otherwise, what is the meaning of eternity? So, spiritual life means to know what that eternity is. yet yasmat brahma-sokam-tvanantam Tanantam? mister Shabdev says that blissful life is transcendental to material happiness and continues forever. We have nothing in this material world. There is nothing that lasts forever. It's unknown. So, to bring the unknown to the known. To evoke the natural Christian consciousness that is dormant within the hearts of everyone requires a process. It's like with a computer. If you uh, know the process, you can go to higher and higher levels of computer science or computer games. If you, if you pass a certain level, you can go to the next level. And if you're successful there, you can go to the next level. So those of us who or computers, probably most of everyone in this room, you know that uh, there's certain problems that you can solve, but then when it gets to a certain point, you've got to go to the manual, you've got to go to the experts. And then when those experts run out of their, uh, run to the full limit of their capacities, they've got to go to some other experts. And those experts in terms, in, uh, in turn have to go to higher experts. So there has to be some way to access the, the highest realm in order to solve problems of life so now there are all, all sorts of social problems ravaging the earth there's so many armed conflicts there's a crisis in education there's a violence, there's sexually communicated diseases um, uh, there's pollution there, there's all kinds of uh, social uh, anomalies that are going on uh, there, there's shortages there, there's um, Things that we don't like, things that we're unhappy with, we see faults. And it's mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita that everything material is faulty by nature, just as a mirror is covered by dust, just as a smoke is covered by fire. Every endeavor is covered with a fault. There's something wrong. Uh, a transcendentalist tries to understand this and and try to tries to solve it, tries to, to think if there is a solution, if there is a solution, what is it? And for the first time in the writings of Srila Prabhupada, we're informed about a solution or an existence or a supreme uh, force or an energy or a God or a person, a supreme person. And it's presented in a scientific or at least a systematic way, in a way that we, with our philosophical minds, can begin to understand. It's not just an airy, fairy, otherworldly salvation type of philosophy where you sit in clouds and commune with cherubs and um, maybe you'll have a little audience with, with someone with a long, white beard sits on a big throne and passes judgment on people. Um, and and the spiritual people, the priests, the, the rabbis, uh, the fathers, the, the Hindu godmen, the, the mullahs, in general, they're characterized as being... Weird. That's the way I mean, they come across our, our screens. That way, that they're they they're not normal people. They're they're some kind of they're out of touch. They're not real people. They're not de- dealing with the real world. But Rashad Davis saying that unless we understand that there is something different something higher something else we're we're on the level of dogs and hogs and cats and flies and fish and reptiles and beasts and birds you know we don't we don't really have anything else to do except uh, urinate defecate have sex defend ourselves sleep get drunk that's a, you know that's I mean, basically these are animalistic characteristics. But for a human, one is human, if it's unique karmically to be a human being. It's karmically above being anything else. And it's because it's only in this form that we can actually engage in austerity that we want to engage in, that's voluntary. It's that's not only voluntary, but we enjoy it. We actually enjoy it because we have... Vishhaya vini var tante nya harasidehinaha. Rasovar varpram rasya. Um paramdrisramni vartate. Ratsovaryamrasoprasya. Paramdishramni. It's paramdrisram means the higher taste. Um if there's if there's something we enjoy doing, um, then it's not difficult to give up other things. It's like we enjoy driving a new car. And if we enjoy driving a new car, then when we drive a jalopy, then it's not not so much fun. We don't enjoy it so much. So this is called Param Drishvam, or Sovajram or Sovasya, the higher taste. The higher taste. And and Prabhupada mentions here that um, we're all looking for happiness. We should act according to superior advice, he says. But human life is meant for tapasya. when we engage in this tapasya that's for a higher purpose, instead of hanging on the train uh, bars or, or straps or whatever they are and getting up at four in the morning like people who run corporations do, that's a kind of austerity. Everyone's engaged in some sort of austerity. Choice making, we can, we can get a, a black shirt or a, a white shirt or we can get a green car or a yellow car. We can get a purple telephone or a black telephone. And we make choices all the time. What kind of clothes we want to wear, what what kind of places we want to go, where we want to take our families, what we do, what we want to spend our time doing, who we want to talk to on the phone, who we don't want to talk to on the phone. Always we're making choices. And these choices sometimes involve austerities. We have to study. We have to read things that we don't maybe think we're going to use, that we don't like to read. But we have to do it if we want to get the degree, if we want to get a good paying job. So constantly there's austerity. So what Rishabh is saying that human life is meant for austerity. Tapo Divyam It's meant for that. And what he's saying further is that the best kind of austerity is voluntary and it's austerity that's actually enjoyable. That we can give up certain things like meeting with sex gambling, intoxication, those kind of things. Right, right, right and and we will benefit from them because then we will experience eternal blissful life transcendental to material happiness and which continues forever we have no experience whatever of this in the material world everything has a beginning and an end every every drinking bout has a some sort of a hangover maybe it's a gross one maybe it's a subtle one but it's bad for us and everybody knows that but yet we do it we, we just do it. I mean, especially when we're in college, the tendency is to go out and it's Friday night or Saturday night and suffer like anything Saturday and Sunday morning. But the next weekend, it's the same thing. Because it's enjoyable. Because we're, we're getting some pleasure out of it. So what dev is teaching is that we can get a higher pleasure. We can get pleasure. Pleasure cannot be denied. That's that's the the... The f- purpose of human life is to enjoy, isn't it? No one can deny that. That's what we're here for, to enjoy life. But because we're trying to enjoy things that don't last, like substances, uh, like sex, like movies, like records, they come and they go. And they have their upside, they have their downside. So what Roshav is teaching is that there's another dimension in life. Krishna, Prema Sadhya, And that can be awakened. That's what yoga means, to awaken or to link or to join, or to yoke ourselves to something that's superior. And this is the, the uh, teaching that is part of Srimad Bhagavatam. It's part of the teaching that Prabhupada brought, that we can't give up enjoyment, we can't stop doing what we're doing, but if we don't do it for higher purpose, it becomes just just a... Shrama A V K alone, becomes useless labor. It becomes something that not satisfying. It just becomes a time wasting facility. And then we get to a point in our lives and we Why did I do that? What was all that? Hard work for. There's no there's a saying of the gratitude is is my marble hearted friend. It's a very hard commodity to come by in this world, gratitude for anything, for anything we do. We just want to get paid and go and enjoy. But there's a higher purpose, and this is what Rishabh is teaching, that what higher enjoyment actually is, what the human form of life can do, that we can be architects of our destiny. So these these topics, these Srimad Bhagavatam topics, they deal with uh, higher things in life. They elevate us from the animal to the human platform. And many people, many sages and rishis and munis and swamis, for the last hundred, hundred fifty years have been coming from India to this country, but they never really had a, established much of a following, not really, not, not globally anyway, and, and certainly not in this country, because there was always the tendency, and it always happened, that the, the teachings were either adulterated, they were impure, they were imperfect, they were very uh, cloistered, very insulated from the rest of the world very much in the realm of preserving a culture rather than trying to have a social agenda that would bring about a spiritual revolution, for lack of a better word, a change. So this is the unique thing that, that Krishna consciousness has brought to the world, that its Founder and Lord Caitanya have brought to the world, that uh, there is an agenda for social change and that uh, it can affect us at every level. It can be affect the whole world at every level, not just in the microcosm, but in the bigger picture, uh, the world can be affected in a good way. That that teaching has come without any change, without any dilution, without any selling out to some system, some uh, hybrid system. These books come to us without any change whatsoever. They come uh, unadulterated. And for that reason, and that reason only, the, the movement, rather than the religion, the movement of Christian consciousness has uh, grown and acquired many followers. They're not followers because they love to dance, they like to cry, they like to sing, they like to chant, they like to eat. I mean, all those things we like to do, of course. But that's not, the, that's not what's responsible for the longevity, for the staying power. The staying power is in a philosophy that is not time-bound. It's not Grecian, it's not Roman. But it's it's eternal. It's a philosophy that was read and appreciated by people like like uh, uh, Goethe and, and Emerson and Thoreau and, and Einstein and Einstein and many others. It's a it's a, it's a very uh, great philosophy of life, and it, it 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 encompasses two aspects, two things that we're all familiar with. There, there's the logic, the left side, and the emotional or the right side of the brain, and both those things are part of bhakti yoga and they're they're essential parts of of existence. We we can't go through life without revealing ourselves, without without emotions, without love, without appreciation, without feelings. And we can't go through life without some kind of logic or sense, common sense, they call it. So Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam possess both these things, common sense, logic, reason, systems, science, and emotions, intuition, art, culture, uh, love, uh, relationships. Both those things are absolutely essential. And both can be explored in a systematic way. It's not that, you know, emotions are without any, there's no sense to it, there's no logic. There's a, there's, it's study, I mean, psychiatrists study it, psychologists study the mind. They study the emotions. The, the, the deepest studies of emotions are in, are in the Vedic literatures. If you, uh, you you study them, you read them exhaustively, you'll find that. The deep deepest studies of philosophy and logic are also in the Vedas. The Vedas are a huge body of knowledge. But they start with Bhagavad Gita, they start with Srimad Bhagavatam. And if you read even three or four pages a day of either of these books, you begin to understand that there is a great and very deep philosophical tradition as well as the tradition of, of bhakti or devotion. So I'm going to stop there and uh, give your ears a rest and uh, ask you to, to comment or ask questions or, or make make any uh, related points. I'll just read the verse again, so we're kind of centered on, on this particular topic. Um, Lord Dev told His sons, My dear boys of all the living entities who have accepted material bodies in this world, one who has been awarded this human form should not work hard day and night simply for sense gratification, which is available even for dogs and hogs that eat stool. One should engage in penance and austerity to attain the divine position of devotional service. By such activity, one's heart is purified, and when one attains this position, he attains eternal blissful life, which is transcendental to material happiness and which continues forever. So any thoughts that come to mind, or comments, or uh, questions, or apparent contradictions, or whatever? Yes?
1: but also we are trying to people are trying to get a higher taste and somehow they think they get higher taste and for some time it's the same thing between the two. They don't after enjoying what is uh, sad, happiness, sad, happy display, happy display is going on. So on the spiritual part also We are doing for the higher things, and we get some higher things. But we also feel what are different reasons that the higher things we don't maintain in our personal emotional life. Don't maintain, and we also sometimes you know don't enjoy that.
0: Spiritual life is dynamic rather than static. And what we sometimes mistake for the higher taste is just variety. We're looking for things to enjoy. Um, People go to parties to enjoy. They use intoxicants to enjoy. Uh, They enjoy sex. They enjoy movies. They enjoy lakes. They enjoy Charles River. They enjoy parties. Uh, They enjoy the countryside. So these are different varieties of enjoyment. They enjoy good food. they enjoy good music, and enjoy good art. but so this is variety and variety as I said is the mother of enjoyment and it's necessary to experience variety. And the fact that, that there are different forms of variety like, like there's a different song, of the, like this the soup du jour. There's the, the flavor of the week, there's the record of the month or whatever. There's the politician of the year or the four years or whatever. And they all fall out of favor at some point because this, this um, type of looking for the higher, higher taste is actually just looking for something different. It's not really going higher, it's going laterally rather than vertically. When we speak of the higher taste in spiritual life, we're actually thinking of another dimension, another kind of enjoyment in which there is purification that takes place. So instead of being victimized by whatever the ears want to hear, we go to that, whatever the skin wants to touch, we go to that, whatever the eyes want to see, whatever the tongue wants to taste, whatever the nose wants to smell. Instead of going to those things which are horizontal in types of you know expansion and enjoyment, we really are trying to... to go beyond and, and enjoy with the soul and to purify the senses and the, and, the, and the tongue and the nose and the ears and the skin. So bhakti-yoga means, yoga means to, it, I think the, the, the word yoke or link comes from that originally. It goes through Latin and remember, Romance languages and English, Sanskrit is actually the mother of all languages. Um, of course, some philolog- philologists will disagree, but but if you study this carefully, you'll find that that that, that uh, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, you'll find that the higher the, the so-called other dimension of life of purification. Bhakti-yoga means that you see the deity, It's the deity, he's very beautiful. You smell the, the incense and the flowers off of the deity. it smells very good, although it's okay, it's, it's, it's a rose, it smells good, it's nice incense sandal, it smells good. You hear the, the kirtan, you hear some nice chanting, that sounds good. Um, and you taste the food, and oh yeah, it tastes good, that's yeah, good stuff. But there's another dimension to all this, which is happening without our actually knowing it or perceiving it. And that's that the senses, all these senses become purified. So there is another dimension to all this. And it's perceivable when we do it over and over again. And it it becomes not just something different, but something better, something higher. So we have to be able to distinguish between... That which is different and that which is higher, and that's what Rishabde was talking about here, tapo deviam, to engage in a little voluntary austerity to to get the higher taste. And when 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 the higher or purified uh, senses are active, then one voluntarily, almost voluntarily, not always voluntarily, but you can give up lesser things. Like if you eat good food, you don't want to eat simple food. If you if you experience a higher, better feeling then you don't want to go back to a, a lower feeling. Like the uh, man and wife, that, that kind of love is different than the kind of love you have for your mother or father. In a sense, it's a higher form. So higher and higher and higher, and we come to the spiritual dimensions of life in which we have the higher the higher taste. And that is what uh, Rishabhdev is talking about when he says that it continues forever. It becomes higher and higher, and then it's and it goes on forever. That's something we don't experience in the material world and that's what this other dimension is all about. It's a dimension in which there is no degradation of feelings, no degradation of philosophy. It's increasing, it's dynamic. Um, Those things which we are seeking after in terms of variety, they are not dynamic, they're static at best. And at worst, they're deteriorating very rapidly. Other points? Questions? Does that, that help you? Yeah, so but if, if after many years of spiritual life and if we don't taste it, that means that it is not really many years of spiritual life. It's It's years of pseudo-spiritual life. <laughs> it's years of maybe looking like we are, you know, reading the book but we're thinking about something else or you know we're, we're chanting but our mind is somewhere else And if we're actually engaged in, in the service of, of God and, and the philosophy of Krishna Kanda, and, and we're actually reading getting something out of it and remembering what we read and building upon it uh, then we do feel happiness the last has someone else had a question yes um, I'm not sure quite how one of
1: my favorite things traveling and to mm-hmm. new places
0: and mm-hmm.
1: new people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, um, although you know, obviously I'm really attracted to the spiritual world in one sense, um, one of the things I struggle with is that it seems like there's a routine. Like, you know, everybody gets up at a certain time, does this during the course of the day. And I'm, I'm so looking for novelty all the time And sometimes when, if I'm not in the right mood and I'm reading about the spiritual world, it seems like there's not, a like, I'm not sure if I know where to go to find the variety I'm looking for sometimes, because the very nature of Goloka Vrindavan, the most beautiful place in the world, it's like, it seems like sometimes people are in the spiritual world, they're they're, they're, kind of, maybe because my mind can't comprehend it yet, it seems like, you know, there's not change, there's not a lot of variety, there's things
0: I'm not sure and you now the Brahma samhita the spiritual world is described as uh, wonderful and blissful because of variety uh, and according to that scripture <clears throat> every every step becomes a dance every every drop of water is like nectar uh, every word is a song a poem And there is great variety. In fact, everything that we perceive here is present in the spiritual world, in its original, pure form. And there's much more, much more variety in the spiritual world. But because, as you intimate, we're in, you know, we're neophytes, we're beginning on our path, we're we're aspiring transcendentalists. Um, Sometimes we need variety and it's not possible. In one sense, all one really has to do to become perfect in bhakti yoga is sit and chant perfectly, like 64 rounds a day for four hours or eight hours. And if you can actually do that, uh, you can become perfect because that's perfection of life. But because we live in the material world, and especially in this part of the world where there's so many things all around us that are alluring us this way and that way, the person who who uh, gave us krishna consciousness who brought it to this country has advised us that instead of sitting and chanting originally he thought it would be good for us to chant 64 rounds but he brought it down to 16 rounds because he said there's a lot there's a lot to do it's not just because we're unable to sit and chant uh, quietly but because there is a lot to do the movement has to grow and expand so this principle of Yukta Bhairagya that, or that the Rupanuga Swami enumerated, that he, that he expounded upon, is very important because it teaches us that we can use everything, including the desire to travel, including the, including the ability to build, the ability to dress, the ability to paint, the ability to drive, to instruct, whatever, just about anything we can think of that we do. There's an art to learning how to do that thing for Krishna. And it's not that it's impure but it's a question of learning how to do it, when to do it, and the art of of doing it. It's not something that you you do overnight. You learn how to engage yourself in Krishna. And the more you do it, the more devotional service that that we perform, the more we learn how to do what we do for Krishna, the more we become pacified and satisfied, and the less we need so much variety. Uh, I mean, Traveling is a very uh, kind of attractive and, and glamorous thing. And it can be, that can definitely be used to to uh, spread Krishna consciousness. Um, there was a devotee who came to the temple in 1967 when I was uh, in San Francisco and he said, I don't know if I really fit in here, uh, all I do is paint. And, uh, yeah, 67. was in San Francisco. And, uh, so just, just being kind of a neophyte myself, I said, well, and, you know, because I sort of knew a few things about Yuktaviragya, I said, well, you can paint for Krishna. And he said, oh, oh, that's good. That, then, I'll, then I'll do that. And so he kind of moved in to the temple, actually. And uh, just so happened, and it wasn't because of me, it could have been anybody, but he became uh, like a great painter for Krishna. His name is Merlidar. Uh, some of you may know who he is, but he, he became kind of like the quintessential Krishna artist for quite some time. I don't think any of his paintings are here, but he's he's really a you know, fantastic artist. But he just did, that's all he did. He just painted for Krishna, and he became a great, great artist, fantastic artist. So his, his art, his knowledge, his expertise became purified, and... Whatever we do, it can become purified. We can learn the art of doing it for Krishna and it can become purified. And we can become kind of pacified too. And after many, many years, then we don't need to even do these things. We don't, we don't have to do them. Of course, we do them because uh, they're spreading Krishna consciousness. But more and more, if we practice sincerely, we become attached to chanting. And we don't have to do so many things. And, and we hope that in our uh, later years, we can just be very attached to chanting and be very focused. Krishna says, that one who is on this path uh, is single-minded. His aim is single-minded. And one who is not on the Krishna's path is a mind which is many-branched. So if we become single-minded, it may seem like we're cutting everything out if we're just focusing on one thing. Like we're, we're just cutting out all the varieties of life. But actually the spiritual dimension in life encompasses all the variety. And those who take the time to chant and to read will find that they're experiencing all the happiness and variety of life that is there, that is available. I mean, I don't know if that, if that answers your question, but those are some thoughts on this topic. Maybe somebody else would like to say something about it or ask something, yes, yes?
1: In education, mm-hmm. and you said that people are working. People are being educated in this modern day mm-hmm. and 2000s and so What do you think needs could or needs to happen
0: in our educational system? The main thing that needs to happen in our educational system is that values and character need to be part of that system, and for those values and that character to be. Uh, a long-term part of the system, there needs to be some um, uh, education about the spiritual dimension and people are very afraid to use the, the G word these days. Uh, it's kind of foreboding. However, interestingly enough, the founders of the Constitution, the founders of this country, the founding fathers, they wanted separation of church and state to mean that government wouldn't interfere with religion. I mean George Washington was a very religious person. He used to have prayer meetings, he used to have some of the congressmen meet in churches. And now, lately, it's come to mean that uh, government can interfere with church affairs, and it does regularly, as many court cases have borne out. And there's a whole book written about it. It's called The Culture of Disbelief by Stephen J. Carter. Um, he's a lawyer. He, he's a teacher, a professor at Princeton. And this is what, unfortunately, has happened. And it's, it's filtered down to the educational system. We were taught, I was taught, and probably many of you were taught, and probably maybe many still are being taught that to to make a value judgment in your research, in your paper, in your exam is wrong. You don't make value judgments, that's taboo. You just research what's being said on this side, you research what's being said on that side, and those of you who go to law school, you know that you have to look at all the precedents on this side and all the precedents on that side and then decide which one you want to go with or you may have to go with a particular one and just push if that is, those are the right sets of precedents, and that becomes the right thing, and that's the right interpretation of the law. So, in school, we uh, aren't taught values, we're not taught character, we're not taught politeness, we're not taught to, uh, and, and as a result, or partly as a result of this, we have so much violence in the schools these days, and people are wringing their hands. What went wrong? What did we do wrong? Well, one of the things that we, one of the ways we went wrong is that we lost the values. We, we lost God consciousness. And it doesn't have to be Hindu or Muslim or Jewish or Christian or Buddhist or Zoroastrian or anything else. It's just the basic principles of, of goodness, austerity, and values uh, uh, being, uh, being uh, decent, decent people. But that all stems from development of the spiritual dimension in life, of God consciousness and love for God, which is Universal. It has nothing to do with Hinduism. It has nothing to do with Christianity. In a sense, it has everything to do with those things. But in another sense, in the, in the universal way of looking at it, it's just, it's just what separates us from, from the animals. So that's what's missing in our educational system. There's no, ed, no part of any educational institution that's teaching the science of the soul. There's no part of any educational institution that's teaching knowledge, real systematic knowledge, of God. I mean, Catholic schools in general I think are a little better at least their advertising they are better in that they have schools with values. That's how I saw a billboard once in Pennsylvania it said, schools with values um, send your kids to such and such school and many non-Catholics sent their kids to those schools because they do tend to have values. They tend to. I don't, I'm not an expert on this educational system but there was some polite you know, like some respect, just just common sense things. So that's what's missing, really. And and I understand that that's gradually kind of coming back. At least I don't know if this is a trend or a temporary phase or a cycle or whatever. But as a result of so much violence in the schools at such a young age, uh, values are, are being uh, considered and, and character is being considered. Forgiveness and tolerance, I heard, were being taught in some private schools here in Boston for the first time. Just This is just something that's developed in the last few years. But that's what's really missing, character development. That's what's missing in our system. And it's, it stems from spiritual thought, spiritual concepts, which have been pushed into the background, into the outer darkness, really, they've been eschewed. Uh, you can't speak about God in school, it's tough. But anyway, that sort of thing, it, it needs to come back, really, if we want our future generations to grow up in a, in a world where the quality of life isn't based upon um, MTV and, and cigarettes and, and heroin and uh, the internet and uh, hairdos or you know whatever, whatever people are into. They're, they're, they're not healthy things for us. Does that answer your question or you? Yeah, it's just
1: making me think a lot about how, how a school system can infuse that in their curriculum in a way that to tweak it in a way we talk about the issues
0: but not necessarily <laughs> Well that's what they're doing. Uh, the, the G word isn't being mentioned and it is. It is a gradual process and it has to start with something like forgiveness and and uh, tolerance and and uh, Uh, Humility. Humility and and, um, forgiveness are the ones I think that I heard are being taught. So these these are character building qualities, and we might call them sub-religious. That's okay, but it's a start, and then the longest journey begins with the first step, so it is said. And these things need to be woven into the curriculum. Not only woven into it, but they can even be taught directly. Okay, forgiveness. Humility it can be put on the blackboard, and we can start talking about things like that. What does it mean? Let's talk about it. Why, why, should, why should even th- things like that be taboo? Why can't we talk about things like that? And so I think that's, there, is a, there is a certain trend. So curriculum, curriculums have to, to uh, start including those things. And it can be done. I, I think that there's an awareness of this in some of the state school systems now. But uh, it has to be very carefully planned. And we can, and one can borrow from the great traditions, and we can't exactly invent what, what humility is. We can't exactly invent what forgiveness is and, and tolerance and kindness and goodness. But all the great traditions of the world encompass these things. They're all part of these great traditions, so you don't have to reinvent the, the wheel, so to speak. They're there. We don't necessarily have to say, this is what the Protestants say or this is what the Buddhists say, but they can be woven in, as you intimate. Yes.
1: This con has done a great job in spreading Krishna consciousness around the globe.
0: You sound like a convert. Can,
1: <laughs> can it not uh, undertake a project for the revival of river Jamuna, which is so precious to God, which is so dear to God, river Jamuna?
0: Yeah. Uh, there are people working on, on the sort of uh, cleaning up the Jamuna. Which has a, a very—I uh, I don't know how many millions of tons of effluent pour into it. It's a pretty contaminated river. It was a very holy river. Um, Krishna purified it at one time five thousand years ago by doing away with the Kaliya demon. He was—I I suppose you could say—was the first ecologist. Um, however, uh, like the rest of the world, the Jamuna, the you know, Narmada, the Ganga, the Godavari, the Kaveri—the the five sacred rivers in India—they're all very polluted. Uh, there's a lot of environmental degradation in Vrindavan. The, the trees are being cut down for fuel. But it has to begin with education. And there are people that are working on this. There are ISKCON devotees that are working on educating the young people of those regions to be conscious of the environment and to bring the knowledge of how to save the environment back to, to uh, so-called developing countries, or used to call them third world countries. It's, yeah, it's being done. There, there are many social problems which plague the world. And the environment is is probably one of the biggest ones, or at least one of the most known and most popular ones. And there is degradation, there is global warming, there is particulate matter floating up there blocking out the sun and uh, there's there's degradation to ozone layer, there's landfills and there's all sorts of bad things going on. And part of the, the uh I guess we have to stop. I'll just end by saying part of the social agenda of Krishna consciousness, the, the, the uh, Vigyan, the practical aspect is to, um, and this the book that Premananda was talking about, is a, is, is a, a beginning, it's a, just a beginning, to show that we do care. We do care about what's gonna happen, not just to our children and grandchildren, but we care about what's gonna happen for the next thousands of years to this planet. And we're, we're because we are, among other things, we, we accept the principles of transmigration. So we want we want to bring uh, about a better quality of life. So uh, we we I think uh, are there some announcements before? Uh... Okay, we're gonna we'd like everybody to stand up for RT and then we have a few announcements to make. Thank you very much, You're very attentive and good audience. Hare Krishna.